0: Sunday, June the 4th, 2017. But who, uh, who knows what else Sunday is? Ashley already let it slip. Today is Pentecost Sunday. For Baptists, I'm not sure. Pentecost might be like trying to put match to a pool of gasoline. But uh, this, is, this is just a tremendous opportunity this morning to explore that day of wind and fire. So here's what I did. I took this. From somebody at the back of the church on my way in. In fact, in order to celebrate Pentecost, why don't you all take a piece of clothing from somebody next to you? No, don't, don't do that. <laughs> uh, I saw this on Joy at the back and and thought, what? Yeah. <laughs> this is how pastors get fired. Actually, this is take it off already. <laughs> I saw it on joy, in fact, I saw bright flashes of orange throughout the sanctuary, partly in the clothing that you've worn and and partly in the bulletins that you're holding, and and we'll use this symbolically in just a few minutes, But, but what a vivid, vivid reminder of that day of God's anointing in the life of his church. We began last week to look at the book of Acts, and this morning we come to look at that, that spectacular day that, that really is, is the day of inauguration for the church. Some people call it the birthday of the church, and I know I've used that word before, but that's, that's not completely true. And here's why. The, the word church, both in the language of the Old Testament and the New Testament, the word church simply means the ones who have been called out and god had been calling people out now for centuries all the way back to abraham he'd been calling out a group of people calling them to himself calling people to live according to, to the directives to the word to the good guidance that he gives calling them to to live under the canopy of his grace what makes today though unique what made it special what what it made what it made it in fact earth moving for the church was the descent of the Holy Spirit. The Old Testament people of God became the New Testament people of God through the investment of transforming power that came from above. In a sense, Pentecost is the day that the church gets rebooted, relaunched. It's the fullness of the Spirit. It's... It's the culminating work of, of God's anointing presence in the life of His people. And I want to read that passage with you. So if you have your Bibles, I hope you do, turn with me in the book of Acts. We're going to be in chapter 2. We're going to read the first 13 verses. When the day of Pentecost came, they were all gathered together in one place. And suddenly... crowd came together in bewilderment, because each one heard their own language being spoken. Utterly amazed, they asked, aren't all these who are speaking Galileans? And how is it that each of us hears them in our own native language? Parthians, Medes, and Elamites, residents of Mesopotamia, Judea, Cappadocia, Pontus, and Asia, Phrygia, and Pamphylia, Egypt. And the parts of Libya near Cyrene, visitors from Rome, both Jews and converts to Judaism, Cretans and Arabs, we hear them declaring the wonders of God in our own tongues. Amazed and perplexed, they asked one another, what does this mean? Now some made fun of them, and they said, they've just had too much wine. What does this mean? Really their question is our question this morning. What, what does this mean? And even though there's, there's far too much ground here to cover in, in one morning, we're going to constantly be coming back to this experience at the beginning of the book of Acts and, and looking in on the themes that we're going to introduce this morning, and there are four of them. To be filled by the Holy Spirit means outside power, Coming in. It means an inner sense of wonder about what God is doing. It's all about a universal message. And it signifies symbolically and really that there's a new man on the mountain. Each of those four points you find in your outline and you're welcome to follow along. Before we do that, let's enlist God's presence. Join me as we pray. God is... We don't want to just read about the come of Your Spirit. We want to know it. We want to know it not just in our heads, but in our lives. We want to experience it. So Lord, in the moments that we spend together in worship, let it come. Let Your Spirit descend into the lives of Your people, accompanied by each of the signs that we'll look at today. The awareness of the mighty presence of God descending in our lives, that inner sense of wonder the universality of what You're doing through the Gospel and and directing our eyes always to a new man on the mountain. Let it come. We pray together in the name of Jesus Christ our Lord. Amen. There are three phenomena that are associated with the day of Pentecost. You find the first one in verse 2. Have a look at verse 2. Suddenly a sound like the blowing of a violent wind came from heaven. And it filled the whole house where they were sitting. That's the first thing, a violent wind. Notice it says they heard something like the sound of a violent wind. I I have a vivid memory of standing up on the cliffs in Tobermory, looking out over Georgian Bay as one of those magnificent thunderstorms rolled in. Sheets of lightning across the sky. Rain just cascading in, and you reach the place where you're wet. I mean, you're so wet, it doesn't matter if you get any wet anymore. So we we just stood there, my friend and I, and we we watched it come. But most of all, wind that blew at us with almost a concussive force. it, It literally pushed you back. It felt like a hurricane. Now, I say like, though, because I've never actually been in a hurricane. I don't know what a hurricane feels like. It felt like hurricane. And that's the key phrase. It's the key phrase here also in Acts 2. It was like. It doesn't say it was a violent wind. They say it was like a violent wind. Something happened in their lives with such force that they began grasping for metaphors to begin to explain it. It was like a violent wind. However the description may read and whatever it may conjure up in your mind... Can't mistake this. The experience was of something coming from outside of them into their life. This isn't just uh, an, an internal experience. It's not just them feeling something from the inside. They all felt it. They all heard it. They all saw it. It was coming from outside them. It says it came from heaven. To be filled with the Holy Spirit. And let's start here. It means to have something from outside coming into you. It's not just an emotional or psychological experience that you conjure up for yourself. It's nothing that the church itself contrives in order to manifest it in the lives of people. Now saying that, it's from the outside in. Immediately, that kind of puts us on a collision course with much of what our culture understands about about life and its problems and its solutions. Hear me out on this. Our culture says that most of the problems that we experience in life come from outside of us. And the solutions to those problems come from inside. We have what it takes to solve them. You can be whatever you want to be. You can tackle whatever life puts in your path. Isn't that the message that we give? Christianity says the opposite. It actually says that the major problems of life come from inside of you. And that the solution to those problems comes from above. We learned our culture's mantra from a very early age, I think. If you have problems, that they're rooted in things that are out there. Social prejudice, a dysfunctional family, economic corruption, just bad genes. My parents gave me bad DNA i got a lousy start in life. The problems, though, however we understand them, are out there. These are the circumstances of my life that made me the person that I am. And everything that I need in order to solve those problems is in here. The Bible says the opposite. In fact, Martin Luther, you know we celebrate the 500th anniversary of the Reformation this year? An important uh, important occasion. We'll mark it later in the year. Martin Luther says that, that human nature, he used a Latin term, human nature is incurvatus in se. It means it's it's curved in on itself. Our fundamental nature is curved in on itself. It's self-centered. It, it makes us feel like we're the center of the universe. We say that about two-year-olds, right? They act like they're the center of the universe. But For many of us, we never get beyond two in our explanation and our understanding of reality. And the world is a miserable place because we keep bumping into each other as if we're all the center of the universe. If you have a problem, it's not me, it's you. Therapy took a dramatic shift starting about 15 years ago. Where it used to be you went into a therapist's office and you said, I need some help in understanding what's wrong with me. All right? Now if you go to a therapist, and if you look carefully at their marketing, it's more about how do I manage the difficult people in my life? You feel that the subtle change in the direction of things? You realize how hopeless that is? If all your problems, if all your circumstances are things that are out there, coming in at you, things that are beyond your control. What a frustrating way of going through life. But if the main problems are in here, are in you, and and if the Bible promises that, that God has an investment in you, that there is power from outside that can affect change in your life, that's good news. The world says the problem's out there, the solutions are in here. Christianity says the problem is in here. The power of God from above is the solution. That reality begins to descend in the life of the church on Pentecost morning. Here's the second of the three phenomena. Have a look in verse 3. They saw what seemed to be tongues of fire that separated, came to rest on each of them. Everybody, hold up your bulletin. Hold it up. Wave it back. No, no. Fold the orange on the outside. Come on. Put the orange on the outside. We didn't spend the extra money in orange paper for nothing. Hold it up. Wave it a little bit. Now listen, I don't know whether this is what things looked like or not on Pentecost morning, but it says it was something like tongues of fire that separated and came to rest on each of them. You know how significant this is? Throughout the Old Testament, when God's glorious presence, when His special presence, presence showed up among his people it showed up as guess what fire it's fire when he's making a covenant as far back as genesis 15 with abraham he appears as a blazing torch when he appears to moses he's there in the midst of a burning bush when he comes down to mount sinai to appear to the people of israel he comes down as fire and smoke the special presence of god the manifest glorious presence of God is depicted as fire. He leads Israel through the wilderness as a column of fire by night. In Ezekiel chapter 1, when when Ezekiel has a vision of the glory of God, he sees fire all around. And here's the other thing. Whenever the fire of God, the glorious presence of God showed up in the Old Testament, it was overwhelming. It was intolerable. In fact, it was understood to be fatal. Now what's happening on Pentecost morning? Fires everywhere. It's in every life. In a sense, every believer in Christ is now a burning bush. Don't miss what's happened here. The glory, the presence of God has now come to rest in the life of every believer. Once it was fatal. Now it comes to everyone. And notice it says it came to rest on all of them. I want you to consider something. In that room on Pentecost Day were the apostles. The apostles are probably the most ordained people in history. Why do I say that? What does it mean to be ordained? To be ordained means that you're trained in and set aside for leadership in the church. And it means that you have a certain amount of authority and trust that's invested in you. Now, listen, I'm all for that. I think that makes some sense. The Bible says there ought to be leaders. There, there ought to be those who have some authority. There ought to be some who are ordained. In the history of the church, there has never been a group of people who were more ordained than those apostles. They were chosen directly by Jesus. They were recruited by Him. They were trained by Him. They were set in their place by them. By Him, they were really ordained. They were authorities. Yet, guess what? On Pentecost morning, the fire of God's presence comes to rest not just on them, but on everyone in every life. Female and male. Clergy and lay people. Everyone. And you say, well, well, that's kind of neat, but what, what what was it like? What does it actually mean? So let's keep asking the question of the crowds. What does it mean? whenever I read the Bible and descriptions of the fullness of the Spirit, though they're expressed in many different ways, I see one common thread that has a way of weaving itself through each of them. See if you can, see if you can tease it out. When the Holy Spirit came upon Jesus in His baptism, they hear a voice from the heavens saying, Remember? This is my beloved Son, in whom I'm well pleased. You're my son, and I delight in you. And you say, well, that's Jesus. What about us? Romans 8.16, we're told that that for all Christians, the Spirit comes into our hearts and bears witness that we are children of God. You are my son. You are my daughter. In you I am well pleased. In Galatians 4.6, the Spirit of God comes into the life of the believer crying out, Abba, Father, You are My Son. You are My Daughter. In You I delight. The job of the Holy Spirit, don't miss this, before it's about any miraculous manifestations or goings on, the job of the Holy Spirit is to come into the life of the believer and tell you something about your truest identity. You are My Son. You are My Daughter. I delight in You. The Holy Spirit is the seal and the reminder of God's presence in the life of the believer. How does God do that? In the Gospel of John, in three full chapters, chapters 14, 15, and 16, Jesus is talking about about what's going to happen when He goes away. And He's talking about this day and, and how the Holy Spirit is going to descend on His people. And He says, look, I've told you many things but the Holy Spirit is going to take everything I've, I've told you and, and it's going to be manifested in your life. It means all these things that you've heard that you know in your head are now going to become a fiery reality in your life. Let me give you a great illustration. At least I thought it was a great illustration when I, when I read it. It comes from the life of Thomas Goodwin. Thomas Goodwin was a 17th century Puritan British pastor. And in trying to get across this idea of the fullness of of the Spirit, he he relates this story. He says one day he was watching a father and son walking down the street. They were walking and talking, but at one point they turned to each other and the father swept up his son in his arms and he held them and he embraced them tightly and told them how much he loved them and the son looked back wide-eyed and said, I love you too, Dad. And, And then he put him back down in the street and they continued walking. Thomas Guggen asked, was that little boy more of a son in his father's arms than he was when they were just walking down the street? And legally, no. Biologically, no. As much a son side by side on the street as, as they were wrapped up in each other's arms. Objectively, no different. But subjectively, experientially, existentially, all the difference in the world. In his father's arms... That young boy was experiencing the fullness of his father's love. He's experiencing sonship. That sense of of being adopted up into the life of a loving parent. What that means is when the Holy Spirit comes into your life in fullness, you sense your father's arms around you. It's an assurance of, of who you are. Taking the things that you may know here, and making them real. What does it look from the outside? Yeah. Well, the answer is given in verse 13. You remember it? You kind of chuckled when you heard it. You should. It's kind of funny. What did it look like to the crowds who were watching on? They're drunk. Yeah. They're drunk. If you read on, the, the answer that That Peter gives is an interesting one. We won't read it through today, but says, "Yeah, it's not even nine o'clock in the morning. I mean, we're (laughs) we're not on that kind of a bender." But it looked to the crowds like intoxication, this joyful, fearlessness. They were speaking the gospel. They were doing it without inhibition. Isn't that what alcohol does? It takes the inhibitions and and it sets them aside remember a comedian once said, it "It takes who you really are and brings it to the forefront. (laughs) Which might be good news or bad news depending on who you really are. But it takes down that wall of inhibition. And here they were, those those early spirit intoxicated believers. They were speaking the Gospel without inhibition. They were joyful without fear. They were happy and they, they didn't seem to be dissuaded by anything. When you see that joyful fearlessness... It looked to the crowds like intoxication. Here's the third mark of the Spirit. The third phenomenon. Acts chapter 2 says, All of them were filled with the Holy Spirit. They began to speak in other tongues as the Spirit enabled them. And then down there in verse 11. Are you with me still? Verse 11 says, We hear them declaring the wonders of God in our own tongues. You read it, it says, they began to speak in other tongues. Some will write it away and say okay that 's where the the match of Pentecostalism hits the gasoline pool, and up it goes. This is the speaking in tongues that is so characteristic of of one huge stream of the christian church that that miraculous evidence of the presence of god and, and the answer to that is yes, but no. I mean the Bible does speak about this. the word is is glossolalia to To speak in tongues. It speaks about it in in several places. In 1 Corinthians, for example, in chapter 12, Paul talks about speaking in tongues. And he says, now listen, if you're going to speak or pray in tongues in a worship service, and nobody understands you, there was no point to it. So make sure that if somebody has the gift of speaking in tongues, you also have somebody there who has the gift to be able to interpret it. Otherwise, it's profitless in worship. You read that and you get the sense that the the gift of tongues is, is a kind of miraculous language of prayer, a language that transcends human language, meant to express something deep, a groaning or yearning from within, but yet only profitable in the life of the church if some understanding or interpretation is given. That, I think, is... Is the language of speaking in tongues that most people are familiar with within Pentecostalism, but that's not what's happening here. Have a look again at the passage. The passage makes it very clear that not only were they speaking in tongues, that everybody was understanding what they spoke in their own language, human language. This was nothing short of a miracle. And what is it that they were saying in all those different languages? What is it they were talking about? They didn't just get up there and say, oh, I'm happy. I'm happy. Are you happy? We're all happy. No, they, they were talking about the wonders of God. The word there's very specific, "Megalios," which means they were speaking about the mighty works of God. That's a very specific word. In the Old Testament, it's used to describe the key event in the salvation of God's people. When God spread the waters of the Red Sea and delivered His people from bondage in Egypt, the mighty acts of God, the wonders of God. That's the Old Testament. In the New Testament, the megalios, the wonders of God, are the miraculous ways in which God has intervened to save His people from bondage through Jesus. Through the Incarnation, God becoming human. Through the Crucifixion, God breaking the bondage of sin. Through the Resurrection, God overcoming the bondage of death. They're talking about the Gospel. The mighty wonders of God in the Gospel. That means that the third mark of Spirit-filledness is to be joyfully preoccupied by the Gospel. If you're really Spirit-filled, you're not just focused on how happy you are, how ecstatic you are in the presence of God. You're thinking about the Gospel. You're thinking about the mighty acts of deliverance that God has worked in people's lives. You're obsessed with the Gospel. You have a new facility in being able to speak about the Gospel in people's lives. And it's not just that they were joyfully obsessed with the Gospel. This first presentation on Pentecost Day, the Gospel went out in every language. You see that long list there of, of all the people? I mean, Luke is very careful to show you how many different countries, how many different language, languages were represented there in Jerusalem. And by the way, that's absolutely normal for this particular day. And we'll, we'll get to that in just a couple of minutes. This was Pentecost. Fifty days after the Passover. And the Jews came from all over the world. They lived all over that part of the known world. They came back to celebrate the great feasts. Most of them didn't speak Hebrew as their first language. When the Gospel was preached to the world, it was preached in every language all at once. You know the significance of that? I'm not sure we've even fully come to grips with it yet 20 centuries later. By a deliberate miracle of God, there was no language, therefore there was no culture. Language is always a bearer of culture. There was no language or culture that had precedence over any other in the Christian faith. There was no one culture that had pride or centrality of place. There's no language or culture where everybody says, ah, that's the original, and everything else comes secondary. It was done all at once. Sena. not a name that I'm sure most of you have run across, but he is a, a marvelous, insightful thinker. He teaches at the, uh, the Yale Divinity School. He's an African professor of missions. And he's written two, I think, critically important books for this generation. One's called Translating the Message. The other is called Whose Religion is Christianity? And I want to tell you just a little bit about what he says in each one. In that book, Translating the Message, he points out something that it's pretty well known uh, among Muslims and in the Islamic world but maybe less so in the West. He tells you and he's right that according to strict Islamic religion the Quran cannot be translated. Now that's strange, isn't it? I mean I have a copy of the Quran in English. Have you ever seen a copy of the Quran in English? Yeah? Have a look at it very closely and it will say on the title page It would be very explicit in making this known that what you're reading is not the Quran, but an explanation of the Quran in English. Why? Because the Quran cannot be translated. The Word of God was given and exists only in Arabic. As far as Muslims are concerned, God speaks and reveals Himself only in arabic the original revelation came in arabic the original communication and therefore all subsequent communication to the world that's holy has to be in arabic if it's not read or spoken in arabic it's not the quran it's not god speaking laman senna says that the christianity because of pentecost is a completely different experience we don't believe that the word of god is confined to one language whether you have a Bible on your lap that's in Chinese or Filipino or Swahili or English, it's the Word of God. Wait, there's there's more to what Sema is saying than just that. He goes on to say that there is this thing that I guess you could describe as a unified Islamic culture. There's an Arabic language, but there's an Arabic culture. And any place where Islam becomes ascendant, it actually it kind of takes whatever culture was there and absorbs it. And notice how it drapes it in a blanket of black cloth. That this this one language, this one culture has a way of subsuming all the cultures underneath it. Not so after Pentecost. In fact, Christianity, sociologists would would argue this is absolutely true. Christianity is the most culturally diverse religion on the face of the planet. It takes radically different forms. And I think because of Pentecost, because of that that emerging reality that, that this is not about a language or a culture, it carries forward this idea that no one culture is the right culture. Christianity comes into every culture And renews it. It honors it. Yes, it calls it to account. If you're Chinese and you become a Christian, you're lifted out of your culture to a degree. The gospel is a powerful story. It may stand in judgment of parts of your culture. But it also redeems it. If you're African, it lifts you out of your culture a little bit. It tells you about a man who died for his enemies. It tells you that by giving up power and giving up riches, he saved us. It calls us to love God and love our neighbors. When you become Christian, Laman Sena says, and he's right, you take a little bit out of your culture because every culture to some degree is judged by the Gospel. But you're actually given a perspective as a follower of Christ. Whatever culture you're from, It allows you to see the excesses and the imbalances and the injustices within the culture and the land that you call home. But, and here's the difference, if you're African and you become Christian, it doesn't mean you become European. If you're an African Christian, a Chinese Christian, a Korean Christian, you still are what you are. Christianity leaves you there and loves you there. It doesn't steamroller over culture. Why? Well, it starts with Pentecost. Because God refused to allow the good news to be confined to one language, to one culture. What does that mean? Cultures have different ways of expressing emotion. Different ways of making decisions. Different beliefs about the value of independence or the importance of the group. Uh, Different cultures have different ideas about Time, punctuality, we experience that, don't we? But the importance of privacy, Christianity doesn't steamroller over these things. And here's what we must be sure never to do, never to think that our particular kind of Christianity is the real Christianity and set ourselves up in judgment of everything else. I love 45-minute expository sermons preached by white guys who use a lot of Hebrew and Greek. And so those other guys in white suits that walk around the stage and shout a lot and are very emotional, that can't be real Christianity. (laughs) Don't do that. Pentecost, God didn't let the Gospel go into the world in just one language or one culture. We need to be really careful about insisting whether we do it explicitly or subtly, that the particular kind of Christianity we have here at MCBC is the only kind. Even here at Mississauga City, we need to be working as hard as we can, as much as we can, to be racially and culturally as diverse as we can, because that's what the Spirit wants. You have this in your notes. And, and I'd love for you to highlight it if you could. In our world today, this is again from Lan and Sena. In our world today, the churches that recognize and lean on the power of the Spirit, those churches are the most interracial interracial and multicultural human institutions in the world. It works. It works. Here's the last point in your notes. There's a new man on the mountain. What do I mean by that? Why does God send the Holy Spirit on this particular day? Why wait seven weeks? 49 days. The day of Pentecost, verse 1. When the day of Pentecost came, they were all together in one place. He could have sent it weeks before or He could have waited months after. Why then? The answer lies in a little bit of understanding about what that day went. Pentecost was not originally a Christian holiday. It's a Jewish holiday, isn't it? Pentecost, 50 days after the Passover, it's when God gathered all of His people together at the foot of Mount Sinai and formed that covenant relationship with them. Remember, we spent just weeks and weeks on that language last year as we made our way through the Bible. That that covenant promise. Now, if you if you compare the covenant promise between God and His people at the foot of Mount Sinai, with what happens here on Pentecost morning centuries later, you see that they're both alike and they're unalike. In both cases, God came down. In both cases, there was fire and quake and wind. In both cases, there was message. Mount Sinai, God gives the Ten Commandments. This this pattern for life lived according to the will and purpose of our Creator. At Pentecost, out comes the Gospel. But uh, right there, we're starting to get into what's different. On Mount Sinai, everyone was scared. They were terrified. Fire appeared at the top of the mountain. And when God spoke, it thundered, and the people couldn't stand it, and they said to Moses, they said, Moses, (laughs) why don't you go up? We'll, We'll wait down here for you. We can't stand to listen to God speaking to us. You go up, and you come back down And you tell us what God is saying. Moses becomes the mediator. Moses is the man on the mountain. He's the man in the middle. He's the bridge. He goes up. He he receives the Word of God. he, He brings it back down and He reads it to them. When they mess up, He intercedes for them. When it looks like God is just so absolutely frustrated with Israel and they're caught up in relentless idolatry and disobedience, Moses goes back up and he prays for them. He's the mediator. He's, he's the man on the mountain. But things are better here centuries later. The fire doesn't just come down from the top of the mountain and out. It comes down in the life of every believer. The word that's going out is not just a word of law. It's the word of the Gospel. Back then when they heard the Word of God, they said, we just can't bear it. Here when they heard the Word of God... There was joyful inhibition. What's the difference? We have a new man on the mountain. Isn't that the difference? Moses was great. Jesus was greater. The ultimate mediator. He's not just between man and God. He is man and God. He's the perfect mediator. He's the perfect Man in the middle. When we sinned, He didn't just pray for us, He died for us. Matthew tells us the moment that He died on the cross, the veil in the temple was ripped from top to bottom. Everything that used to be veiled off from the world, the Holy of Holies, the place where where they were convinced the glory of God was was only free to dwell. That was now exposed to the whole world. The fire that once was fatal is now released on those who are alive in Christ. You know what it means You know what that means to be alive and to be part of the church? To be part of a congregation like, like this one? This is not just a place where you come to be inspired. This is a place where we we learn to live out gradually but surely the undoing of all of the curses that have come into the human race that are dividing people. This is a place not only for you to be filled with the inner wonder, wonder and, and have your needs met. This is a place where barriers come down between husbands and wives, between, between parents and children, between neighbors, between nations, between cultures and races. This is a place where we give evidence that the human race can be healed under the lordship of Jesus Christ. And don't you want to be part of that? Do you want to be part of that? You need to be filled with the Spirit. Maybe you say, well, listen, I I don't know what that means. I'm not even sure whether I'm comfortable with that language. sounds a little bit too charismatic for conservative Baptist. So maybe you just want to say, I don't know that I'm as filled with the Spirit as I ought to be. Maybe it's been a while since existentially, emotionally, I've, I've felt like like God really has His arms around me. Like I'm, I'm really accepted. Let me invite you to keep coming back. Keep coming back Sunday by Sunday because the book of Acts is all about that. But what happened as one life after another, one town after another, one region after another, experienced that living reality keep coming back and as you keep coming back come with this one simple prayer oh lord god through your holy spirit descend on my life let it come let's pray together father we thank you for this, this remarkable tour of of all of the resources that came down on your church that day, for this remarkable picture of of what it might be possible for us to be and what we should be as a church, we pray for this congregation here in Mississauga, Lord. Lord we pray for the for the whole GTA, indeed, for every place in the world where Jesus Christ's name spoken and honored. Come, Holy Spirit. Come and help us realize through the fullness of what You're doing, through the healing of our lives and the healing of societies, through the growing up of real communities, what can happen through the work of Jesus Christ and the power of Your Spirit. We pray that You would enable us to experience these things. These things that not only would be blessed in the world, but would perfectly glorify Your name. We ask that You accomplish it through Jesus. It is in His name that we pray.